Our opening words this morning are from my colleague, Gretchen Haley, a poem she wrote in the last week called Believe Survivors. We believe you. Your stories held too long in secret and shame are safe here. You are safe here to grieve and rage and reckon and reconcile, return and restore. There is a place here for every piece of yourself, bodies and spirits, voices and breath, broken and beautiful, bitter and still refusing to give up hope. In this autumn light, there remains a path for beginning again. Do not hold back your heartbreak or your joy, your vision for the world that is already and also not yet. Let every tender longing of your heart be an offering for this time and for this community as we are building here already a new way the will, the courage, the faith to be the leaders, the people, the parents, the friends, the citizens, our world, and we need now. The change begins now. Washington Ethical Society. My name is Zeb Green and I'm the clergy intern here. My pronouns are he and him. And we're so happy that you could be with us this morning, whether you're in the room or joining us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope that you have a blue name tag on so that we can know who you are and can welcome you and answer any questions that you might have. We all love talking about this community and why it's so important to us but we'd love to hear about you and what you're looking for and answer any questions you might have. 
We hope that you'll join us in the platform service, join us after the platform service for coffee and cookies in the lobby and social hall. Also, please consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet in your program so that we can add you to our mailing list. Feel free to, to drop it in the basket later in the platform service. I'd like to remind everyone at this time to please silence your electronic devices so that you can be fully present this morning. But if you have your phones out, feel free to check in on social media and, and let people know you're here. I'd now like to invite Rich Reese, a member of our Earth Ethics Committee, to come and read a statement, read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our shared values in each other's words. Hi, good morning, everybody. Uh, the Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capabilities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you, Rich. As Rich Rhett lights our community candle, I invite you to join us in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week, we ring this bell in solidarity with people around the world. Today, especially, we're holding in our hearts the survivors of abuse and trauma, those who have stories that they've told or keep in their hearts. We hear you, and we believe you. As we listen to our chimes, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in this world. Let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and for our love. I want to do something a little different than usual with our meditation this morning. 
As you all know, this is a part in our platform service when we often invite you to close your eyes and sink into breathing and connection with yourself in your interior mind and heart. And for folks who have experienced trauma or for any of us who are in the middle of anxiety, heightened anxiety, it can be actually difficult and sometimes harmful to close our eyes and go inside. And so I wanted to teach you today a technique that you may find helpful in the midst of significant anxiety if you're in one of those moments. It's also good for trying to fall asleep if you're having thoughts racing through your mind at night. Um, and it's great to teach your children as well. Um, because it's an accessible technique. So we're going to learn a technique together for our meditation this morning, and I want to invite you into that. And then we'll have just kind of a moment of silence and a few breaths and listen to our music. This technique is called 54321. Easy, right? 54321. And it's a grounding technique that keeps us centered in the present moment instead of inviting us to kind of go inside or off to a different happy place in our minds. So you do this meditation technique with your eyes open, your ears open, in the present place where you are. The first thing you do is silently to yourself, you look around and you name to yourself five things that you see. So you might say to yourself, I see the window, I see the chair, I see the projector, I see the floor, I see Jen. Then you name five things to yourself that you hear. I hear the HVAC. I hear furniture moving. I hear children. I hear my own breath. I hear another's breath. And then five things that you feel. And I mean feel like you touch them. I feel my necklace on my hand. I feel the straps of my shoes on my feet. I feel tension in my shoulder. I feel the ground underneath me. I feel my arm when it stretches out. And then you start again with things you see, and you count four. They don't have to be the same four. It's not a memory quiz. <laughs> Just four things that you see, and four things that you hear, and four things that you feel, and then three, and three, and three, and two, and two, and two and one, and one, and one. There's no magic about what the things are. There's no significance about what your final one thing is. The whole technique is meant to ground you in this moment, in this space, to begin to calm down the adrenaline that often courses through our body at times of heightened anxiety, and to provide a kind of meditation technique that's accessible for us at times of great anxiety and accessible for those of us who have trauma, which means it can feel unsafe to go into a different place, an imagined or remembered place, and instead safer to stay grounded in this moment. 
So that's the 5-4-3-2-1 meditation technique. We're not going to practice it right now because it's long, right? It takes a while. It's one reason it's good to do if you're having trouble going to sleep. It's also boring, so you'll <laughs> hopefully fall asleep. I usually get to about three. <laughs> but I want to invite you to try it yourself sometime and teach it to someone that you think might be helped by it. Five, four, three, two, one. Grounded in this moment. And I invite you now to simply take a few breaths with me. And to settle into our music this morning. much Greater U Street Jazz Collective as this week <clears throat> started to um, shape up I was so pleased that we had jazz planned for Sunday morning which is uh, music that to me at least can hold a lot of emotional space and has in the history of our country held a lot of emotional space This month, we are looking at the theme of sanctuary. <clears throat> and I think the term sanctuary sometimes feels a little, um, ooh, for folks at West, you know, because we might think about sanctuary as what in other traditions, in churches or synagogues, people might call the, the room where the magic happens, right? The, the room where people gather, the room that we call the main hall here. 
And, um, and so I know that when folks first hear that word sanctuary, they can sort of have a reaction of that. What, are, what exactly are we going to be talking about here? <clears throat> Joan Johnson Lewis, an ethical culture leader who serves the Brooklyn and Riverdale ethical societies and who also uses the same themes that we do, sent me a message this month. She was thinking about the same thing. How do I talk about this with my folks? And she said that she realized that sanctuary is actually exactly holy ground, right? It is a place set aside, set apart. The phrase above our stage is from our founder, Felix Adler, who said that where people meet to seek the highest, where we come together with our highest values and our highest hopes, that place, wherever it is, is holy ground, is, as Joan pointed out, a sanctuary. And so that's how I have been thinking about a sanctuary this week, about, um, about what it means to have and to be sanctuary, not like the place, but the, mm, the being of it in a community like West. Sometimes I will say I can't quite figure out why we have communities like West. I don't know if you ever have weeks like that. You've been at a long committee meeting or, you know, you've had to work with someone you just don't really like that much, you know, or you, you've had requests for your time or your money and, oh, you think, gosh, our congregation is really a good idea. I'm not sure. And then a week like this one happens and I remember why we build community, even when it's hard. I was in Mexico last week um, for 10 days. I arrived back on Monday evening, and it was so hard to be away from you all last week as things were unfolding in the capital. I knew that so many of you were hurting both with the kind of frustration and rage and fear that comes from seeing the country follow a path that does not align with our values, that reinforces patriarchy and undermines women. And I knew, too, that many of you were hurting in a deeper and more personal way, that the last two weeks have brought up old and traumatic pains from your own experiences. And friends, beloveds, it was hard not to be with you during that time, and I am so glad to be here today. This past week, like some of you, I was out protesting and raising my voice. As you know, Zeb, our clergy intern, has been out repeatedly as well. I didn't really think we would win. I think sometimes when I do protests like that of the prophet Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible, who, um, who called out to the people and, and tried to get them to follow his, um, his heed, even though God had explicitly told him he was going to fail, there was no lack of clarity there. He did it anyway because it was the right thing to do, and that's how I, I felt. But I thought, well, maybe we would be successful with such a clear movement in the country. And of course, as we know, we were not. And so now I want to make a blanket fort 
and crawl inside with some kittens, which conveniently I have recently obtained, and maybe watch Mary Poppins on repeat. I think with macaroni and cheese. I want to feel safe. And this country does not feel safe to me right now. It does not feel safe for women. It does not feel safe for survivors. It does not feel safe for immigrants or for people of color or for trans and non-binary folks or for queer people who want, for instance, to have a job and not be at risk of firing based on their identity that slipped through this past week. It doesn't feel safe for people living in poverty or anyone who lives near sea level or actually, as it happens, anyone on this planet as we strip away the protections that had a possibility of keeping us from hurtling headfirst into ecological disaster. It does not feel safe. We need a sanctuary, a blanket fort. We need to find a sanctuary, or we need to build a sanctuary, or we need to be a sanctuary. And here's the thing, depending on the moment and who each of us is specifically and what our individual capacity is in this particular given moment, one of the things that we are each called to do is to figure out whether we are the ones needing the sanctuary or the ones building the sanctuary. And side note, it's not that simple. Stay tuned. <laughs> There's an article that was published in the LA Times several years ago, which I often use with our pastoral care associates. This is all going to come back together. Don't worry. It's called The Ring Theory of Offering Care, and the name of the article was actually How Not to Say the Wrong Thing. <laughs> and the idea is that if somebody is in any kind of crisis, an illness, a loss, anything at all, if they are in the center of the crisis, the person who is ill, they receive everybody's care, right? And then there's a ring outside them, the people who are closest and most connected to that person in crisis. And they give care to the person in crisis, but they also need a place where they receive care. And so they look one ring out. And then that next ring of people, maybe the good friends, are supporting not just the person in the center, but also the close family, right? But they need care. And so then they turn to their friends. And you go out and out, these kind of rings of people. And the watchword of the ring theory is comfort in, dump out. Right? So if you're on the third ring, you shouldn't call up the close family member on ring number one and say, this is really hard for me because it's already really hard for them. <laughs> right? You dump out. You find someone a ring outside of you who can be your comfort and care, and you bring your comfort toward the person closer in. The same is true of sanctuary of creating safety. In a given moment or situation, if you are in the most need of safety because your being, your selfhood, your bodily integrity, or your personal human dignity is at risk, 
you are the one that gets to seek sanctuary, to have it built around you. And if in that moment you are someone who is relatively safe, then your job is to help build that sanctuary. It's like giving someone your umbrella because you've got a raincoat on today, and your raincoat even has a hood that you can put up. So what are you doing holding on to an umbrella? Pass it along, right? Notice I said pass along the umbrella, not just hold it over the other person. That's one of the ways that it's a little complicated. When we are in a position of being a builder of sanctuary, the people trying to provide it, it doesn't necessarily mean we always get to do the actual construction. Sometimes it means that we gather up the tools, that we buy the raw materials because we have the time and the resources for a Home Depot run, right? And then we hand it all over to the person who needs sanctuary so that they get to build it however it is that they think it should look. And you might not always agree with the way they did the roof line, you know, but it's not your sanctuary, it's theirs. And so you're going to go make a coffee run and buy some more lumber and guard the perimeter so that they can work in peace and relative safety. That's what it means to build. Now, if you need the sanctuary, if you're the one in the center of those rings of care and need, what do you get to do when you're inside it? Obviously, cuddle kittens, watch Mary Poppins, and eat macaroni and cheese. That's my answer. Your answer might be different. The real answer is anything you want. I'll amend that. You get to feel anything you want. There are still limits on behavior, right? But if you are the one in need of sanctuary, if your life or your bodily integrity or your dignity or your personhood are under attack by our system in this country, I want you to hear you get to be angry or sad or despairing or hopeful or exhausted. You get to be all of those things at once if you feel like it. Part of being safe in a space, especially when outside that space you are marginalized by systems of oppression, is that you get to have a full range of emotions. Comfort in, dump out, right? Works every time. And I want to take a moment to say that right now, in this particular time in our country's history, this week, a lot of the women I know are angry. Like me, for instance. We are angry at a system that continues to devalue our experiences, to devalue our bodies, to tell our little girls that they can be anything and then literally fail to keep them simply safe. We are angry at patriarchy, and I want to be clear that patriarchy is not the same thing as men. And I also want to be clear that patriarchy benefits men just the way that racism benefits white people like me, whether I want it to or not. 
it can be scary to be around people who are angry. And it can feel, if you are outside that circle, you know, one of the outer rings, if you are hearing people dump out because you are one circle removed, you know, it can feel like people are angry at you personally. And so I want to invite the men here who may be hearing from women and from trans and non-binary people and perhaps also from survivors of all genders who may be hearing from them a lot of anger. I want to invite you to hold that, to honor it, to allow it to be to know that part of being a builder of sanctuary and of safety is letting it be. I want to invite you to hear the anger, to be strong enough and caring enough and tender enough to witness that anger and seek neither to control it nor to dampen it. And I know you can do this. I get feedback, of course, from folks about my speaking in platform, which I really do love. You help me to be better. You tell me how I'm perceived and experienced. But women speakers and preachers in particular are always most afraid of one piece of feedback. You might imagine it's smile more. A couple of... Um, a couple of months ago, I heard from a white man in this congregation, a boomer white man, about smiling. But this story isn't going to go how you think it is. I was talking about being angry. And he said to me, you know, you said you were angry, but you were smiling the whole time. I I want you to know you can just look angry, too, and that's okay here. That is a gift in a community like this one for a woman to hear her anger is okay. And so I thank you for doing that, for doing it already and in advance for continuing to do it, even while I commit myself to doing the same when I'm on the outside of that circle, when I'm hearing the anger of a person of color or an immigrant or a person living in poverty, may I have the grace and care and strength and tenderness to hold their anger as I ask for mine to be held now. Okay, so I said it was more complicated than that, because that sounds easy, right? No problem. Just, you know, holding entire spaces that go against the way our system operates in America. So there's another way to understand sanctuary in a community like ours and safe space. We've been talking about sort of creating safe space that we seek to create for those who are unsafe in society. And the other way, I'm actually going to quote a teen at Wes who used these words. She said, Wes is a sanctuary for thoughts and opinions to be expressed. That's another way to look at what it means for us to be a sanctuary. Right? And there's something about that that resonates with me. Yes, you know, that's, I love that about this place. I love that we are a place where we can talk about things that are difficult and about which we disagree and I want to name that sometimes when we are working against systemic oppression, it can feel to people that we are losing that part 
of the sanctuary, that we have become a place where there are right words to use and right answers and a party line. I hear that sometimes, or that even with the right words and right answers, it feels like an unsafe space for people who think differently. I, I hear that concern, and I can understand it. And I return to words from Robert Jones, Jr., who tweets as son of Baldwin. Jones wrote, we can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. So I believe that there are lines, there are boundaries that we create so that those of us who are most often marginalized in the society around us are protected in our sanctuary, in our safe space. The ridiculous example which people sort of always go to is whether a white supremacist could be part of ethical culture. There aren't a whole lot of white supremacists who apply for membership here, but you know, it's a thought experiment, right? Someone who affirmatively believes that white people are better than people of color and speaks that belief and acts based on that belief. And my answer is no. We are not open in that way, certainly not if that person wants to say any of those things or act any of those things in this community. Now, I said that was sort of a big and perhaps silly example. That isn't typically how my new member conversations go. <laughs> but here's a much more real example from the last six or seven months here. We decided on staff to start using uh, pronouns when we introduced ourselves on Sunday mornings. Zeb did that this morning as he introduced himself in the welcome. He said his pronouns are he and his, my pronouns are she and hers. And we did that because we wanted to make this space safer and more welcoming for folks who use they or them as their pronoun, or for folks whose pronouns are not necessarily easily correctly identifiable, we wanted people to be able to share themselves what their pronouns were, just as we share our own names, right? I don't assume that you'll know my name. Please don't call me some other random name. That's not my name. And I don't necessarily assume that you'll know my pronoun. Now, I think we did it a little fast without enough explanation, and so it felt threatening and unfamiliar to some folks. And I wish we had given more explanation, but I don't actually wish we had done it slower. We prioritized the safety, the relative safety and welcome in our community for people who are consistently marginalized, misgendered, outside of our sanctuary. We prioritized that safety, even while it felt fast or hard or confusing to other folks. And if it still feels confusing, come talk to me. I'm always glad to have a conversation with you and give you an excellent copy of the National Geographic magazine, and then we can talk more. There's another way that I look at that idea of safe space and sanctuary in a community like ours. 
that kind of safe space for difficult topics and disagreement. It comes from a poem by Mickey Scott Bay Jones, the activist and writer. She writes, together we will create brave space. Because there is no such thing as a safe space. We exist in the real world. We all carry scars and we have all caused wounds. In this space, we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world. We amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. We call each other to more truth and love. We have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. We will not be perfect. This space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be. But it will be our brave space together. And we will work on it side by side. What I love about Scott Bay Jones's poem is the understanding of our space as a space for each one of us, acknowledging how much we each carry. We carry our identities as they show up in the larger system and society, and those identities are different than each other and affect how we interact our privilege and our marginalization. We also each carry our own individual identities that are completely personal. The ones that have to do with our own lives and the traumas or the histories that we hold, the victories or the losses that shape who we are, each of us, as a person. We all carry scars and we have all caused wounds, Scott Bay Jones writes. And she's right. And so rather than safety in our conversations, she calls us to bravery, to seek honesty, listening, amplifying, as she says, voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. It can be hard these days to find hope for safety. I wrote that line yesterday. It was the beginning of my final paragraph and then I couldn't figure out what to put after it. That didn't seem like a great sign. It can be hard to find hope. And I'm done. <laughs> I saw these words by Bo Sia. If we cannot inspire them to choose to protect us from harm, we will inspire each other to build a world where we are protected from their harmful choices. I mentioned Isaiah out there doing the right thing, even though he was sure he would fail. The other reason to do the right thing is to inspire each other for that world that we are hoping to create. At the march I attended on Thursday, uh, where we marched from D.C. Appeals Court to the Supreme Court, very early on at the rally, we were just kind of getting ourselves into marching. It was a little bit chaotic, you know, nobody quite knew where to go. And um, 
I and the colleagues that I were, was with met a young woman who had a sign and, you know, a little backpack and um, just smiled and said hello and she introduced herself. She was 14 years old and she had left school uh, that day and gotten on a bus and two metros to come down to the rally by herself. I don't know anything else about that young woman's story. I don't know what it was in her life that made her need to be there that day, whether she was hurt or someone she loved or she just was filled with passion for justice in our country. And of course, because I have two daughters myself, what I really wanted to do was to tie a rope to her wrist and my wrist and like walk with her through this entire large crowd that was ending up at the Capitol for civil disobedience. And here's this 14-year-old all by herself. But boy, she didn't need me. <laughs> In fact, I couldn't keep up with her to get that little rope around her wrist and keep her safe. She was headed for the front. And she was ready to fight. She has a lot of years ahead of her for that fight, and we're going to need her. We're going to need all of us, actually, inspiring each other to create the kind of world we hope for, the kind that protects us from harm, all of us that creates a sanctuary, a safe space, a brave space where we are welcome.